So there's a, it's kind of a deep irony today that I've totally lost my voice and we're preaching on Zechariah and that's kind of like his story too. So I feel like I can relate. Um, during the season of Advent, we are studying scriptures that announce and explain the meaning of Christ's coming. And today we're looking at Zechariah, we're looking at Luke chapter 1, and um, I really like these passages. It's been fun to preach through these passages that are songs, because it's a reminder that the people of God are a singing people. We're not just thinkers. Our faith, it's made of doctrines, but those doctrines, they're not intended only for our heads, but they're meant for our hearts. It's, it's only when the Holy Spirit gets us in, in both of those places, in our heads and in our hearts, when we truly begin to change, when we start to be transformed, when we start to actually live and act differently. And uh, this moment in Luke chapter 1 that, that Jennifer read for us is one of those spirit-filled moments. This is uh, a man who was a priest, but he's singing. See, when, when the, the angel came to him, a little bit earlier in this chapter and told him that he was going to have a son and his son was going to be the one who prepared the way for the Messiah, Zechariah doubted his message. But now nine months have passed. He's watched this whole pregnancy take place and when this child is finally born, we got a totally different story. If you remember, right, when, when Zechariah uh, didn't believe, uh, he became mute. And so he spent the pregnancy in silence, unable to speak. He had a lot of time to think. He had a lot of time to contemplate what it might mean. And then when he's finally able to speak, we find this guy has been totally transformed. We find this guy who is completely in awe of the mercy of God. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at this song and figure out exactly what it was that struck Zachariah's heart. And maybe I hope that that could strike our hearts too. So as we look at this song this morning, I want us to see the three main themes of the song. The first theme that you find is the devastating reality of sin in the world. The devastating reality of sin in the world. The second thing you find is the incomprehensible mercy of God. And finally we see the coming glory of Jesus Christ. So let's start there at the beginning. The, the devastating reality of sin in the world. Um, there's a book, it's called The Crucifixion. It's by uh, a woman named Fleming Rutledge. And in that uh, book she she highlights a, a Calvin and Hobbes comic. Um, I know our, our church is, is getting younger lately, so I, there's a lot of people here who may not know who Calvin and Hobbes are. Um, so let me know, Calvin and Hobbes is a, a comic strip. You used to find those in something called a newspaper. Um, you can, they were funny. Um, Calvin is a, is a, is a kid, uh, Hobbes is his, his toy tiger, his stuffed tiger, uh, who he imagines is alive. And in this particular comic, they're on a sled in the snow, uh, and it's just before Christmas, and Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes says, oh, you're worried that you haven't been good. 
what is going on today, guys? <laughs> um, you're worried that you haven't been good. And Calvin says, it's okay, honey. <laughs> That's not what he said. Um, so Hobbes says, you're worried that you haven't been good. And Calvin says, well, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition of good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say that I deserve a lot of presents? And Hobbes says, well, maybe good is more than just the absence of bad. And Calvin said, well, see, that's what worries me. Usually when we hear the word sin, we're thinking like Calvin. We, the thing that comes to mind first is, is doing something bad, right? Lying, stealing, cheating, murdering. But sin is a lot bigger than that. Sin is bigger than simply doing bad things. And when Zechariah starts to sing, his song, it, it shows us that he knows that. Uh, he knows that, that sin is not just an action, but sin is, is also a power. Sin is a power that's at work in the world, and sin is a, a condition of our hearts. Sin is a condition that frames everything around us in the world, and sin is also actions and behaviors. And here's what I mean. Well, let me just talk about each one of those things. Sin is a power. Jesus when he's talking about sin in, in John chapter 8, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In Romans 3, Paul says that everybody, Jews and Greeks, everyone is under sin. Sin's not just an action. He says it's a power. It's this power that has infested our world that we live under. It's a power that oppresses us. It is an enemy who is constantly working against us, not only as individuals, but it is a power that is in our systems. It's the power behind corrupt governments and institutions. We all live under it, and no matter how good our best philosophers are who, who try to help us think through it, how to how to find a way to overcome it, to be, be enlightened, to finally live a life free of evil, no philosophy can get us out of it. Despite our best efforts to build this noble and loving and harmonious society, we can't do it. It's the reason why both capitalism and socialism fail. It's why no peace treaties really last. It's why the very organizations that are designed to protect our citizens are also often places where people abuse power and sources of fear in the world. It's more than just a bad individual or a bad behavior here and there. It is a power that we are under and we cannot fight that power alone. Our enemy is too great. We're not strong enough. But Zechariah, he sings because he recognizes that there is someone coming who can, 
There's someone coming who is going to fight against this power and win. Verse 69, he says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke from the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, that we're going to be rescued from this power. He knows that there's someone coming who's going to conquer, who's going to free us, who's going to defeat that power that rules over our lives and over this world. That's the first image of sin we see here. But secondly, he recognizes sin's not only a power, it's a condition. It's a condition we live in. Verse 79, he says that when this Savior comes, he's going to bring light to those who sit in darkness. That's the second image of sin. It's this condition that frames our existence. It's darkness. Apart from God, we are all blind women and men groping around in the dark. Scripture tells us that God has created us in his image. That means when he created us, he made us like him. He gave us desires that were like his desires, good desires, desires that were made to be fulfilled. Let me just tell you a few of them. We all desire to be known and understood. We desire to be delighted in, to be cherished. We desire to be loved. We desire rest. We desire peace. We desire to accomplish things in our life. We desire to, to do something and hear someone tell us, well done. But those desires, as good as they are, can only be met by the living God. And sin has blinded us to that. We are in darkness, and so we grab at everything, trying to find an answer for those needs. Do you remember that old kid's book, Are You My Mother? Do you remember that with the little bird? And the bird goes around to all the different animals in the barnyard and is like, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Well, that's us. We go to everything and we say, are you my God? Can you meet my needs? We look at our relationships, our accomplishments. We look at our talents. We look at what we have and we say, can you fulfill me? And it's foolish. It's silly. It's like the bird talking to the cats. But we don't see it because we're blind. Sin is not just an action. It is this condition that frames our entire existence. And finally, sin is an action that we are responsible for. The, the truth is there are powers at work in this world that work against us. There is a condition of darkness that clouds all of our uh, lives that distorts our desires that gives us this misguided instinct but in the midst of all that we also are guilty of sin 
Verse 77, he says that when this Savior comes, he's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. There's, he says that we need somebody who can declare that we are not guilty anymore. Who can relieve us from that guilty verdict that is most certainly coming because of the crimes that we have committed against God's law. Sin's a power that's ruined everything. It is a condition of darkness that distorts our desires. But all of that stuff, all those bad effects, you know those things are here because of us. That reality has come into the world because we sinned. Because we rejected God and we chose, each and every one of us, to go our own way. So the situation's bleak, is what I'm saying. We're guilty rebels who deserve to be punished. We are oppressed by a power that is far too great for us to overcome. We are blind. We cannot see. We cannot even see our need to be saved. That's the devastating reality of sin in the world. But Zechariah sings because the birth of John the Baptist means the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, things are going to change. When he comes, there's going to be a day, like he says, that we will finally be able to serve God without fear. And that brings me to the second thing I want to talk about, the second theme of this song. It is the incomprehensible mercy of God. The incomprehensible mercy of God. Okay, so sin is in the background of the song, but that's not why Zachariah is singing. This isn't a song about sin. This is a song about God's mercy, right? He's singing about his son, his son who's going to be the forerunner to Jesus, his son who's going to be John the Baptist, who's going to announce the Lord's coming, who's going to prepare his way. He says, as for you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. That's the key word there. The thing that has captured his heart and not just his head is not about what this is going to mean for him, okay? He's not really... The thing he's singing about is not how great this is going to be for his family history or how happy he is for his son and and the prestige that this might bring him. What What has got his heart is God's mercy. He is amazed at the nature of God's mercy. The way he puts it is that God has done all of this stuff God has chosen John to be his son. God is sending his Messiah because of his tender mercy. His his tender mercy. Everybody say that. I need some help, guys. Say it one more time. Tender mercy. That's the point. Get that word into you today. It's a really special word. It's kind of hard, honestly, for us to get the whole meaning of that word uh, through this English translation. Literally, it means something like merciful bowels, like like merciful innards or something like that. 
It's, it's trying to communicate this idea that, that God's mercy is deep inside of him. That it's deeply connected to who he is, to his character. That, that his mercy defines him. His mercy is what sets him apart from us. To be God is to be merciful. Does that, does that strike you? Can you connect with that? That God, to be God is to be merciful? I'm going to be honest, it's kind of hard for me sometimes. When I think of God, I often think of a powerful God. I think of the God of the Westminster Confession, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I think of this God who is omnipotent, who can do all things, who knows all things, and I often think of a God who, for some reason, has decided to put up with me, but I often imagine that he's, he's not very happy about it. Can you relate? I think that he's surely got to be growing impatient with me by now. That I'm, I'm probably wearing out my welcome. But when God has a chance to describe himself in Exodus, you remember the story? Moses asks God to show him his glory, and, and God eventually agrees and, and passes before Moses, and God declares his name. And do you remember what he says? God says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God has a chance to declare himself to the world, the very first thing he announces about himself is that he is merciful. His character is mercy and grace. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, British preacher from the, the 1800s, he said, if you want to see God at his most godlike, you need to see him when he pardons sin. Or flip it this way. If you want to see yourself in your least godlike, Try to show mercy the way God shows mercy. You know, I think one of the reasons we struggle to accept that there is this merciful God is because we have a hard time being merciful people. Sure, we can forgive sins a little bit, right? We can forgive sin once, maybe twice. But when someone is sinning against us over and over again, it's harder for us to forgive, right? We start to shut down. We remember the pain. We start to, to self-protect. But not God. Or what about with ourselves? We're not very merciful with ourselves either, are we? I, one, one author said that, that God is, is far more merciful with us than we are with our own selves. Because the truth is, we, rem we remember our own sins, right? We beat ourselves up. We, we are, are, are constantly 
critiquing ourselves. We are, are constantly replaying our, our own shortcomings and our failures. Mercy is something we want. And when we see it in the world, it's something that we celebrate. But it's unnatural for us. It's not natural. It doesn't come easy for us to show mercy continually, right? But God is mercy. And not dutiful mercy. Not begrudging mercy. He is tender mercy. In other words, when, when God forgives our sins, that is something that flows out of his heart. It comes out of his love for his people. Spurgeon, he says, he forgives with an intensity of will and a readiness of soul. That God, he made the earth and the heavens with his fingers, but he gave his son with his heart in order that he might save sinners. Tender mercy, it means that God, he really, truly, actually loves you. That's why he shows you mercy. That's why he sent Jesus. When God looks at this world and he sees his people's suffering, his heart, it breaks. He looks at you and he longs for you to know him, to experience his love. He looks at this fallen world that is oppressed by this power that we can't overcome. He looks at this condition of spiritual darkness that we live in. He looks at our guilt and our sin that we have committed. And his heart is overwhelmed by that. He doesn't delight in our pain. He isn't waiting around passively for us to come to him. His, with his tender mercy, it says that he pleads for us. Ezekiel 33, he says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn from your evil ways, for why will you die? That's an astonishing thing. I hope you haven't heard it so often that it doesn't matter to you anymore. It is an astonishing thing that this almighty God, this all-powerful God, who can create our whole world just by speaking, this God actually cares. And not just a little. He cares so much that it defines who he is. And that's why Zechariah sings. This isn't just in his head. This is in his heart. He realizes that God's heart is tender towards his people. That his mercy is incomprehensible. And finally, that, that brings us to the, what the, the song is really about. The main point of this song it is about the coming glory of Jesus Christ. The closing lines of the song uh, are maybe the most Advent-appropriate song lyrics that we've gotten to so far. 
right? We've talked about this already today. Advent, it's about looking back to the first coming of Jesus, looking at his birth, but it's also about looking forward to his return when he comes to set all things right. And here, in the last verses, he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So this is where Zechariah tells us that God's mercy is active. He isn't waiting around for us to do something. He cares so much about the problem of sin that he can't just sit aside and watch. But in the person of Jesus, he is kicking down the door. He is entering the world to redeem us from all the effects of sin. And I really like this picture of Jesus as the sunrise. When was the last time you saw the sunrise? We got some early risers here. I know we got some people that see the sunrise too much. <laughs> I know we got college students here. Maybe some people saw the sunrise before they went to bed tonight, last night. Um, I saw the sunrise just a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, I saw it rise over the ocean. And it was, it was a glorious sight. You know how it is in those moments where the sun is about to come up, right? And everything slowly starts to brighten. And you can kind of get a sense of where the sun is about to be. But then there's that moment where it's just like, bang! Like, there it is! This bright, blazing light. It's orange, it's, it's pink, it's lighting up the sky, it's lighting up the clouds, and it starts to rise, and it gets brighter, and it gets brighter, until you can't even look at it anymore. When God came down, he didn't come like people expected it. Do you know that? He didn't come like a storm. But he came like the dawn. He came like the sunrise at the beginning of a new day. He came, Zechariah says, to bring light to the darkness. Now, if you've ever been in the darkness before and you've had somebody turn on a light, you know those first moments of light, they actually aren't all that great, right? When somebody flips on the lights, the first thing you feel is usually kind of painful, right? And that's the way it is for us too. When God starts to shine his light in your life, that first flash of light, it hurts. Because God shows you your sin that you couldn't see before. He convicts you of what you've done wrong in your life. There's a sadness that you see. And when you look around and you, you realize that we've been living in this misguided condition our whole life, it hurts. And when your eyes get open to see the powers that are at work in this world oppressing everyone, it makes you weep. When you find out the condition of your soul, when you find out that this world is not the way that it should be, it's kind of shocking, right? But also, in that moment, when you see the light, we get to see our Savior. When the light comes, we see our Savior who has shown up in the midst of the pain to rescue us from it. 
And that's the good news. Folks, that's the good news. Christ has come to remedy the problem of sin. You know, it's really cool because all this stuff, in one of the most famous passages, it all shows up in Colossians. He says that Jesus, He has come to change our condition. Paul tells us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. You were dead, but God has come to make you alive. You were in the darkness, but God has come to bring you in the light. And not only that, He's come to forgive us of our guilt. He says that He has forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. But not only that, he came to conquer the powers. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Man, this is, this is the coolest part, I think, of this, this image, this last poetic thing that Zechariah is singing about. You know, when Jesus comes, he's not a flashlight. He's not just this tiny ray of hope in the darkness. He's the sun. He is this blaze of light that is more powerful than all the darkness could possibly be. John chapter 1, a light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He is the sun who's going to drive away all the darkness. But there's a reason it's the sunrise. Because right now, where we stand... In this moment in history, at the end of 2018, we're just at the beginning. The truth is, God, he's just getting started. Jesus' birth, it's not the culmination. His life, his death, his resurrection, that was not the grand finale. It's just the beginning. It's the dawn. Because Jesus came, because he died for our sins, because he rose from the dead, that means that the light has broken in, but the full light of day is still on the way. And that's what this season's about. We've seen the sunrise. But it's only a matter of time until all the darkness is gone. It's only a matter of time until he comes to set things right. It's only a matter of time until, like Isaiah says, he comes to make the rough places plain. This morning you got up, maybe you walked here, maybe you drove here, rode your bike, took the bus. But you did that this morning in a dark and broken world. I don't know what your life's been like this week. But maybe you have particularly felt the weight of that darkness. But I want to remind you today that although this is a broken world, although this is a dark world, it is a dark world where the sun has risen. It is a world with a God whose tender mercies have been poured out it's a God who has brought light into our darkness. 
and, and each day, that full light, that noonday blazing light is drawing nearer. So if that's true, if that's the case, if the things that Zechariah is singing about have really happened, then we need to respond. If the light has really risen, then we got to do something about it. That means that, that if the light has come, we need to get out of the darkness. We need to repent of our sin. We need to, to run to the light. But not only that, if we are in the light, if we are dwelling in that light in the midst of this darkness, that means in our world, we need to bring the light. Wherever we see it, wherever we see people in sin and in despair, wherever we see brokenness and, and turmoil, we can't just pass by it without speaking truth, without sharing life and light in the dark and broken places. We're loved by a God who has come to us in tender mercy. But if this song tells us anything, it's telling us that that mercy is not just for us alone. It's a mercy that, that we are supposed to share. I want to invite us to receive that today. Not just in our heads, but in our hearts. I want to invite you to take that with you this week. I know a lot of you are about to leave here, go visit your, your families or your hometowns or do something else. I want to invite you to be people who go in and share mercy, who bring light. I want to ask you to join with me now as we pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we thank you for the people who've gone before us. We thank you for the message that they've delivered to us, that you are the Son who has risen. Lord, we need you in this dark and broken world. Father, I ask right now that you, by your grace, would allow this truth to come alive. Father, right now, I ask that you might shine your light into the lives of the people here. Lord, I pray that every dark corner would be exposed. I pray, Lord, that you might heal us and that you might welcome us into your arms. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.